0: Well, let's turn together again to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Coming once more to uh, this portion of God's word dealing with the responsibilities of husbands and wives. Again, I remind you the context here, verse number 18 of this fifth chapter says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled. With the Spirit. And I think it's important to recognize again that obedience to these things requires the filling of the Spirit of God. And that if we're to truly honor God in our homes, it will be as those who are filled with the Spirit. And so, verse 19, you have, uh, verse 19 through 21, you have some exhortations regarding the church. And then from that, there is these specific words to the wives and the husbands, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then down in verse number 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Amen. May God guide and direct us in his word uh, today. We are, of course, in this section of our studies in Christian ethics in the subject of family and marriage. And you're not seeing it at all. So George is pointing at me. George is very helpful uh, pointing at me here. Let me give me two seconds and we'll get it uh, back up again. Technology is great. When it works. When it works. This worked for the hymn, didn't it? Was it on during the hymn? Yeah. So it just, yeah. I glitch. There we go. You know this already, don't you? The definition of marriage, for the, the working definition we're using, it is a covenant of companionship. Again, drawing from the language of Malachi uh, chapter 2. Again, I, I deliberately have been very, very careful in the ordering of of our studies at this point, because when you come to think about the respective roles of husbands and wives, they must be fulfilled in in the setting of a biblically ordered marriage. Marriage as an institution applies to all mankind, even those who are not converted, but in terms of the ideal performance of God's will, it does require a new heart and the infilling of the Spirit of God. And when there's a dysfunction in marriage, it is ultimately at some level somewhere because sin has come into the marriage. Somewhere. And that will happen in different ways. But a marriage that is disordered is a marriage that in some way is suffering from the consequence of sin in one or both parties and usually to some degree in both parties. And so there is these challenges that are we faced. And so we're looking at this marriage in function as a functioning unity. The two become one. And they function in unity, practicing biblical equality, whilst there is this issue of ongoing diversity. And the diversity, of course, has to do with the matter of the role of the husband and the wife, their respective respective responsibilities when it comes to the functioning of the marriage, the husband as the loving leader, and the wife as I've termed this matter of the submissive servant. Again, those terms have to be so carefully understood and explained, um, but I think those are two summary terms that do indeed reflect the biblical testimony regarding this matter. And so last time we thought about the husband as the loving leader, not to be the head of the wife, but as the head of the wife, either a good head or a bad head, but as a good head he will love as Christ loves the church. Again, I'm not going back over those matters but just emphasize again that Christ is the model, and yet as men, your responsibility is to love your wife. Today, we go forward to the next section, which is dealing with this matter of the wife as a submissive servant. Again, I must confess to some degree of nervousness. I'm not trying to be humorous here in many ways. I'm nervous because I think in many ways this area has to be so carefully handled. And you say, well, it's because you're pandering to the feministic agenda of the world and you're scared of offending the world. No. I'm scared of men misusing this idea. That's what I'm worried about. I'm nervous about men taking this concept and using it to domineer and abuse their wives in a way that Christ does not treat the church And so, at least in in my short experience, uh, I've certainly seen more often than not that husbands have taken this idea and have demanded things of their wives that they had no right to demand in every area of marriage, causing great damage to the marriage and the testimony of the church, even in the world. And so I am nervous in that regard, but yet it is very clearly a biblical teaching. Uh, It has to be handled in light of what the Word of God says on the matter And so as we do so, I suppose, again, I encourage you, this may not, you're not all wives. Again, that's obviously the case. But this applies to all of us. Because in many ways, there's a tremendous lesson here regarding the church's submission to Christ. And so for men, you're going to see what it is to submit to your head, namely Christ. And of course, for all of us, there's the ongoing application of praying for each other in the various spheres of our responsibility. But as we think about this matter, uh, again, that is something that must be handled with care, we ought to see, again, this has a creative foundation. And So thinking about this, uh, here I'm just trying to, I'm trying to establish the biblical warrant for the terms I'm using here, a submissive servant. And it has, first of all, a creative foundation. Turn back to First Corinthians chapter 11, please. First Corinthians chapter 11. And the verse number 3, of course, we looked at this portion some months ago now with regards to the head covering. It says there, verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This idea of headship that is taught here in verse uh, number 3, again, has been very controversial in, in many ways. In what sense is the husband or the man, sorry, the head, of the woman. Again, there are some, we say, well, it's a matter of, of source. In other words, out of Adam comes Eve. It's not referring to authority. That's the assertion here. This is not an authoritative issue. Rather, it's a matter of source. Of course, that's not the case. This is a term that refers to authority. You have verse number 10. When it comes to the application of this, for this cause ought the woman to power on her head because of the angels. And we spent some time thinking about that matter. The word power there, that is the word authority. And the head covering is the symbol of the authority that the man has over the woman. Now, verse number three, the word for woman there, is the word that is otherwise used for the word wife. And so at the time of the head covering, we discussed this matter. Well, is it the sense that the husband is the head of the wife only, or is there a more general application of man's headship over woman? If you remember back then, I think, I didn't go back to check, but I think I, I sought to defend the idea this is a general concept, not simply of one man over one woman. And I say that because it's referring to the church here, not the family, it's referring to the church and its responsibilities and so later on you're going to see uh, that the woman is not to teach in the church and so it's a it's a broad application in this verse however having said that if it is true generally it does not cease to be true in the home so if the headship principle is generally true of men having a headship role over women, then it is particularly true in the church but the reason i turn to this passage is because it is grounded in creation, not in culture. This is not a cultural issue. Verse number 8, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. You've got this as a creation principle. You have the headship of man grounded in the first parents, namely before the fall. And as it comes before the fall, the very premise of this entire study is on the importance of these creation ordinances as revealing the will of God for mankind in every culture, in every age, without even considering the matter of sin. And so here you see the creation foundation of this principle. But having a creation foundation, it also has a consistent application. That's the second issue here. It is a creation, foundation, and a consistent application. And what I mean by that is we see it applied by different New Testament authors in different contexts. So again, we're not seeing this application just in one local church who had perhaps a difficulty in their local context. We saw it. Turn back, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to show you three portions that have this idea of this and when we're building the pattern here of these two words, this submissive servant, Ephesians five again. verse number 24, of course, drawing from the concept of the husband as the head of the wife, verse 24, "Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything." Okay, there's a very clear statement of, of, of responsibility. Uh, The wife is to be subject unto Christ, even uh, our sorry sorry, wife to be subject unto their husbands, even as the church is subject to Christ. And in verse number thirty-three, you have the really striking reference, and the wife is to see that she reverence her husband, and that is the word phobos; it is the general word for fear. Has this idea of the of the wife having a situation. Not that she's scared of her husband. That is the wrong application. That should never be the case. But that she has a due reverence for her husband and his name. And we'll come back to that concept later on. reverence for the name of her husband. So that's the application to the church in Ephesus. Then turn across to Titus chapter 2. Again, these letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus have application, again, beyond the local church. These are words of exhortation to pastors in general to these individual men, but they have clearly a broader application to the wider church. So you've got Titus chapter 2, that the young women, verse number 4, are to be taught by the aged women, verse 3, that they are to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be the street, chaste, keepers at home, good, Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Again, okay, here's the inspired language of Paul uh, to the pastor Titus, as Titus would teach the woman in the church, older woman, this is what you must teach the younger woman. This is what they must have as their focus, that their character is discreet and chaste, and their function primarily has as its first concept. The well-being of the home, under the oversight of the husband. Verse number five. And so here we find this again, and the inference, of course, is this is part of God's inspired will for the wider church. And then one other portion, and of course, it is First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three, which in many ways is the most challenging. Because it refers not to the wife of a converted husband, but the wife of an unconverted husband. Again, this proves, we'll come to the conclusion, in a moment or two, this proves again the generality of this application beyond the local context or culture, even beyond the application to the church. Verse 3, or verse 1, sorry. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now notice, all three times, Ephesians, Titus, and First Peter, there is this explicit statement to your own husbands. And I said what I said last time, this does not give men generally the right to tell women to do what they want. It's not a general concept. And so in the church, the oversight of the church belongs in the church elders. Do not belong to you as an individual man that you have the right to tell women in the church what they ought to think or do. If that as a as a believer, there's this mutual thing that men and women together will encourage each other, but the application is very very clear in all three portions here that the wife's subjection is to their own husbands. But then it continues that if any obey not the word, See, here you, you've a man who's heard the gospel and chosen to obey not the, to obey not the gospel, but they may without the word be won by the conversation, by the lifestyle of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Again, I think there the concept is of reverence, the wife to the husband. The wife will live in a humble, discreet manner before her husband, serving faithfully, living in respect, again, with a godly spirit. You go on down through verse number 3, that the adorning is not, again, external, but rather, verse 4, the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And then you go on down through the example, particularly of Sarah. Sarah obeyed Abraham, verse 6, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Again, before we even going into the application of, of this general principle, Please note the concept, verse number 6, and are not afraid with any amazement. Because one of the things that young ladies have to understand is if they embrace this concept, well, what if my husband treats me badly? Can I do this safely? And here in the context of an unconverted husband with a converted wife, even in this situation, the wife is to live not in fear, and the opposite of fear in the Scriptures is trusting the Lord. That's what's involved here, that you're not living in fear, but in trusting God. And then, of course, we know verse number 7 then refers to the duties of the husband. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. And there's the gentleness that's required of the husband to the wife. But before we even go into any of the outworkings of these things, you see that there are these three portions of Scripture, different writers, all writing under the Spirit of God, of course, different writers, different contexts, but the general application of this creation foundation is taught. This is not a cultural matter. It's not local. It's not culture. It's creative. And therefore, it applies to every church in every age, Jews, Gentiles, no matter the timing, no matter the culture, no matter the generation, this is God's word for his church. Now, such teaching, of course, is radically countercultural today. That's why we find it difficult. It's so, it's so very much distinct from the culture in which we, we live. It certainly stands in opposition to uh, a radical feminism that's so prevalent in the world uh, in the latter part of the 20th century. It's also worth noticing it stands in contradiction to the abuses of Islam. This is Christian. And I mention that because what is written here in the New Testament was countercultural in those days. It wasn't easy to be a woman in the days of the New Testament, no matter what your culture was. If you were Jewish, the idea of the Pharisees had become more and more common that you could divorce your wife as Christ says for any cause. There's this idea of divorce for the, the, the smallest of reasons. Where the wife had essentially no legal authority and was subject to that abuse in that sense. You had the Greek culture, women in Greek culture, according to the authorities, they were treated almost in seclusion. They were kept out, out of sight. They weren't allowed to come to the, to the public gatherings for meals. That wasn't the wife's duty. The Greek culture, again, you read some of the, uh, the writings of that time, and they had various levels of women, some for their own pleasure. The duty of the, womb, the wife was simply to give children that were legitimate. That was the carnality of the Greek culture of that time. You think of how some even view the church in that way. That's all the church is teaching. That's not true. We are countercultural. The Romans, actually, they had some of the different ideas. They had mortal chaos, multiple marriages. And again, they often had the time where there was a movement, a a feministic movement. And there are some sources that talk about there were female wrestlers in those days. Nothing new under the sun. This idea, if men can wrestle, I can wrestle. And you get this this concept of all that's going on in the confusion of the Roman world. So what does the New Testament teach? It teaches the dignity and the equality of women in the sight of God. And that men's responsibility is to treat their women, their wives, with tremendous care and love, nourishing and cherishing their wives as their own body. This is incredibly countercultural. It stands in the face of the spirit of the age in those times. You see, we know that when both these roles are embraced a loving leader and a submissive servant, it is for the good of both parties and the true blessing of God upon a God-honoring and enjoyable and vibrant marriage. But if I can take you back to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, I want to try to think this through carefully. What does it mean for the wife to be subject or submissive to her husband? What does it actually mean? What's involved in this regard? Well, back in Ephesians, there are two things that you should understand. Ephesians chapter 5 And you've got verse number 21. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. At first reading, you may think that that's really saying the same thing as verse 23 says. Christ, the head of the church. And then verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. But I think what verse number 22 is saying, that when wives embrace this principle, they are serving the Lord. This is a God-honoring, Christ-exalting attitude to bring into marriage. And I say that because of the parallel that's used over in Colossians chapter 3. Go to Colossians chapter 3. We've got, again, another illustration of a submissive relationship, uh, an authority. Servants, verse 22, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eyes service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. I think that ought to encourage a woman who is seeking to obey the word of God but is doing so in a manner that is not acknowledged even by her husband. see, The servants here, they had a higher authority in view. They knew that their masters did not always treat them well but their obligation was to perform the function of of an inferior to a higher authority in the workplace, and they were to do so as unto the Lord. They were serving the Lord in that capacity. And so it is for the woman to serve and to, again, be submissive to the husband. It is to do so ultimately unto the Lord. It's of the Lord that the reward is received. It's an awful thing. man. if you never say thank you to your wives, that is an awful, awful thing. If you never appreciate or honor what they do in your life, may God have mercy upon your soul. It's such a heartless mentality. But dear woman, if your husband never thanks you for all that you do in their lives, woman, you are serving the Lord in this regard. And it's of the Lord that you receive the reward. That's what the servant's mindset was, verse 24, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward. So going back to Ephesians chapter 5, and again trying to draw that distinction between verse number 22 and what follows. What follows is indeed also very, very significant. For the church is subject unto Christ, verse number 24, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so the parallel here, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, And wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to the Lord. So how does the church submit to the Lord? What does that mean in practical terms? Well, the church submits to the Lord out of love for the Lord. Christ is the head of the body, and as the head, Christ directs the church's functions and aims. Please think this through carefully. Christ serves as our head by directing the church with regards to the functioning and the aims and the objectives of the church. The church serves for the good of Christ, for the glory of Christ. To put it this way. The church serves for the benefit of the body of Christ. Isn't that what we serve for? We serve for the benefit of the body, Christ as the head. And the husband is the head of the family, even as the family carries the husband's name. That's just not a convenient matter of of culture. That's a very deliberate matter. The husband as the head, the family carries his name. And so the church serves for the good of the body generally, Every member serving for the body of Christ. And so the wife serves for the benefit of the entire body. For the family. And for the honor of the husband's name that is carried in the family. Submission struggles usually come when there is a desire for one's own will. When does the church not submit to Christ? When it wants to do its own will. When it has its own mindset involved and it's got its own agenda. That's when the church fails to submit to Christ. And so the church submits to Christ by gladly embracing the Lord's direction and leadership for the church. Gladly, happily consenting to the Lord's direction for the benefit of the entire body. And so submission struggles often come when there is a desire, even within the woman, for her own will to be done. Without thinking that the husband is leading as he is for the good of the whole, for the good of the body. Now, can the husband be selfish? Sadly, yes, and often so. And so you get conflict in the submissive relationship. So I'm talking about. Sin breaks this down, but sin comes in both parties. The husband leads the family for his own agenda, and the wife understands that, and therefore there's a, a clash in the principle of submission. Or the wife resists the husband's direction because of her agenda, and she will not submit to the husband. And so ideally what you see here, you see a situation where the husband is genuinely before God, seeking to lead the family for the good of the entire family under God's, and the wife then gladly trusts the husband's direction. So submission comes in these two areas, out of love and out of trust. And through sin, these things break down, and then you get this clashing within the family, and again, a husband who knows the scriptures will use the scripture and say, well, wife, it is your duty to submit to me. But the wife has this wrestling in her mind because she does not believe the husband is acting for the good of the family. And so you get this conflict. You see, can a wife ever question her husband? Is that appropriate? Again, I, I've, been, so I've been in contexts where when women do not believe they have the right to question their husband. I must be submissive. So, can a wife ever question her husband? My response to that, well, yeah, I'll take, I'll take a response from that. It was, it was rhetorical, but let's go for it. Yeah. So, the yes, Sarah questions, you think of Abigail and David, you see there's, there's several examples in the scriptures. And so, can a wife ever question her husband? My response would be the wife must always question her husband. Every time, at all times. Why do I say that? Because the husband is not Christ, and the husband's will is not infallible. Christ always is, and so here there's a parallel, but it's not absolute. There are some distinctions here. You see, the husband's duty is to convince and persuade his wife regarding a decision that is based upon the word of God for the good of the family. The husband must do that, and you must take on that responsibility. If you love as Christ loves the church, you must prove to your wife that what you're asking her to do is indeed biblical and is for the good of the body. That's your responsibility to really convince and persuade her in that regard. When you do that, the wife gladly submits. Is that, is that always the case? No, of course not. There's sin in these contexts, and there's going to be wrestling in this, in this regard. Sometimes the wife has to come to the conclusion, my husband has tried to convince me, I do not agree, but I cannot persuade him any further. At that point, I must submit. Unless it's sinful. Because in every submissive relationship, it is unto the Lord. And therefore, there is the caveat in all times that if the husband requires you to sin or to not obey, both of those aspects... Then, wives, you have the right and the responsibility. Indeed, you have the duty to resist. Graciously and gently. You must never submit unto sin. Yeah, Susie. I think an
1: example, though, that's commended in the New Testament. And to me, that would be an example where she would be submitting unto sin because she was put in a bed that she shouldn't have been in. But God, I know God stopped it. And so, I mean, it's almost like that's lifted up that she was submitting to such a point that she was even willing to, to not say, this is wrong, Abraham. So, I mean, I don't know. That, that example confuses me.
0: I'm not convinced that Sarah is commended for that example. I think it's a more general commendation of Sarah in the whole. I think she's wrong in that situation. She should not submit it in that context. So, but, yeah, it's a, it's a, Sarah's example is difficult because there are times that Sarah... Again, in the context, acts in a way that you go, well, "Why, sir, should you have done that?" You know, a couple more, George, at the and then that. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's all Sorry, yeah, you mentioned this idea of repositioning, rethinking about it, and clarifying your role. And I deliberately couch this in terms of responsibility, of the husbands. Ultimately, as the head of the home, you you govern the direction the home goes in. And so you've got to continue to bring yourself back. What am I doing? What's my purpose? What's my focus? What's my attention here? And it must be for the glory of God in your home—a home lived under God, pursuing the direction of God. So you come back to unity in this idea a unity of purpose, a shared purpose. And in that shared purpose, then there's, there's a less potential for this conflict and this tension when it comes to submission. And I think submission should be couched as a, as a positive thing. It is a, it is a pushing together in the same direction. Submission sometimes is like, I'm being dragged along against my will. That's not the imagery here. The imagery is of pushing in the same direction. But the direction that is given, given by the husband's leadership, and the wife gladly says, I'm going to put my shoulder behind that goal and that objective, and we'll, we'll do so together. And that's where you get the, the difficulties. Now, I think it's important. There are times when there are authorities over us who will ask us to do things that we do not necessarily like. Okay, so you get, you get in the workplace. Your employer may ask you to do a job that you don't want to do. But it's not sinful, and your responsibility is to do that unto the Lord. The government, again, there are those in governing authorities, who may ask you to do something you don't like. Speed limits—I'd right? rather they were faster—and all ideas. But you, your responsibility is to do those things unto the Lord. And so sometimes it is in the marriage that a husband may give direction, sincerely believing it for the good. That the wife may struggle with that, but if it is not sinful, then there ought not to be that resistance and that struggle at that point. But it's got to be in a manner that is not sinful or is not, is not preventing obedience in the things of the Lord. And so I'm not denying hard situations here. But we submit ultimately. Here's the I want to conclude with this. And I'll come back to Dan, but I want to conclude with this. The church submits to Christ. Ultimately, and we, we struggle with that, and George has said that. We struggle to submit to Christ. But ultimately, we submit to Christ when we believe His will is for our good. Not just the good of the entire family, the body, but for our good individually. And so that that happens. You may not think in that way, but you ultimately come to the conclusion, I'm going to go to church on the Lord's Day. I'm going to submit to Christ's direction. And ultimately you come to the conclusion, because this is for my good. And so, men, it is our responsibility to lead our wives in a manner that they trust us and believe that our leadership is not just for the good of your name or the family, but also for their individual good. That your care for them is such that you nourish and cherish them in such a way that they will gladly understand what you're doing is for my personal good. Now, are there hard situations and hard cases? Of course there are. Again, I've said it all along. I've to excuse myself. Now, this course is a course on the principles, not all the applications. And so, I can't even begin to cover every single circumstance that may have come in this, in this regard. But the church gladly submits to Christ's leadership, under Christ's protection, and under Christ's counsel, knowing again that Christ directs the church for the church's good and for our own good individually. And that parallel should be true also in the church. And I'll take Dan's comment, and then we better finish.
2: know how um, Christ loved the church, but I was also thinking of a woman charged with adultery and unbelievers like to use, you know, judge not, yes, you be judged fair um, righteous judgment mm-hmm. so um, when i witnessed people also uh, the Lord smites my heart in, in that, well Dan, you were like that before too um, well Dan, you did this before too so what's the intention of why we're saying what we're saying Saying, you know, we share the gospel, we share, you know, it's not like sodomy, sodomy's wrong. Now, uh, when I talked to the he, you know, I said, Are you a sinner? He said, He didn't even understand that. I said, Well, if you're a sinner, you're welcome to come. Mm-hmm. So, my point is, when we when we share things with our wives, and vice versa, my wife got me in check, many Um why are you doing it? You know, the, the, my wife would say, tribute to her, then uh, we did pray this morning. Let's
0: pray, you know, so stuff like that. So. Amen. No, yeah, a godly wife is a tremendous benefit to the man's spiritual growth. You know, there is that pushing together, getting the same, the same direction. I'll let it close. Your time is gone. i just say this, that if men find themselves in a situation where they believe their wives are, are not behaving in this regard... In a counseling situation, a biblical counselor would take you back to the principle that your wife's resistance to your authority may well be because she does not believe that you love her or she does not trust your direction. And that might be to do with misunderstandings in the wife or it may be due to problems in the husband. So I'm not suggesting for a second that the problem sits on one side or the other side, but ultimately a struggle with regard to submission is a breakdown of trust or an unbelief that the husband properly loves the wife. Because as we love as Christ of the church, then there will be glad submission when it comes to these to these principles. So this is so countercultural that even in a godly church we struggle with these things. And we've got to be honest with that. Um, but let us have an open Bible. Um, an open Bible, let's seek to understand what is the will of God in these matters. I will stop there for today. Thank you for your, again, attention and participation. May God help us in our homes that we live for the glory and honour of Christ. Let's all pray, Heavenly Father. We come again to Thy presence, reminding ourselves once more of the need for the help of the Spirit of God. Fill us, O Lord, in our home lives, that as godly men and godly women, we will gladly follow Christ's direction and serve in our homes as unto the Lord, and then serve each other for our mutual benefit. Lord, help us to pursue the other's good, that we would see within our marriage this opportunity to serve another believer, to lead them and guide them in the things of righteousness. Give us help and humility, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.